Let's pray together. Father, I just as we come before you, we reflect on, on the words of the psalm that we just read, Father. And if you were to account our iniquities, our, our mistakes, our sins, and our frailties, Lord, uh, not one of us could stand before you, and that includes the pastor. Father, we thank you that your grace meets us here this morning, that your steadfast love is fresh and new and greets us as we worship. Father, open our hearts to see you this morning. Open our hearts to understand your word. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. If you've been with us the, uh, the past couple weeks for the season of Lent, this kind of 40-day period that happens before Easter, you'll know that we've been looking at a specific group of psalms that are located in the bigger book of psalms, and this group is called the Psalms of Ascent. You can find them in, in Psalms 120 to Psalms 134, and we've seen how they're traveling songs. They're songs for the road. They're songs that God's people in the Old Testament would sing as they traveled to Jerusalem. Uh, pilgrims would have to travel to Jerusalem three times out of the year for religious festivals, and part of their routine is that they would sing these songs to one another as they traveled on the road to Jerusalem, as they ascended the hill to Jerusalem. And, and we've seen that they're real-life psalms. They express the ups and the downs of this thing, this journey called faith that we talk a lot about. They are the stuff of real life. And this morning, we're going to reflect on two of those psalms, and that's Psalm 130 and Psalm 131. And if, you've, if you listened, you notice that both of those psalms talk very uh, deeply about our souls. And when you think about our soul, you think about kind of what the Bible talks about our soul, and it describes it as our inner self. The essence of who we are is this thing that we call our soul. And there's three adjectives that both of these psalms use to describe our souls, and they're adjectives that are becoming increasingly unfamiliar in our culture now. The first word is wait. The psalmist says, my soul waits for the, for the Lord. And the other two adjectives are calm and quiet. The psalmist says, I have calmed and quieted my souls. And those three adjectives, waiting, calm, and quiet, are adjectives that are often becoming very unfamiliar in our culture and our society today. Instead, our souls are typically busy, they're frenetic, they're impatient, they're all over the place, and they struggle with any sort of sense of calm and quiet. This morning, what I'd like to talk about is, is the busyness that often characterizes our souls. Tim Crider wrote an opinion piece uh, in the New York Times, uh, I think it was about two years ago, and uh, the opinion piece that he wrote was called The Busy Trap. And in it, he writes, if you live in America in the 21st century, you've probably had to listen to a lot of people tell you how busy they are. It's become the default response when you ask someone how they're doing. Well, I'm busy. I'm so busy or I'm crazy busy. And he writes that almost everyone that he knows is busy. They feel anxious and guilty when they aren't either working or doing something to promote their work. They schedule in time with friends the way students with a 4.0 GPA make sure to sign up for community service because it looks good on a college application. Kevin DeYoung in his book Crazy Busy talked, talked about this too. He said, 
I read an anecdote once about a woman from another culture who came to the United States and began to introduce herself as busy. It was, after all, the first thing that she heard when meeting an American. Hello, I'm busy. She figured it was part of our traditional greeting, and so she told everyone she met that that's who she was. We live in a culture that is characterized by busyness, don't we? We live in a city that's characterized by busyness, and often we lead lives that we would characterize as extremely busy too. And it seems to perpetuate upon itself, doesn't doesn't it? Don't our lives seem to be getting more busy rather than less busy? I can remember when I was in college, I worked with um, an organization called Young Life. Some of you have heard of it before. Uh, And uh, in Young Life, I was a volunteer and and mentored and worked with uh, a bunch of high school students. And I can remember one particular semester, I I had a lot going on. I was very busy. I was taking 24 credits. I was uh, committing 10 hours a week to Young Life, and uh, I also had a part-time job and I, that I worked uh, 20 hours as well. And I can remember going uh, to my Young Life leader and complaining about how busy I was. I was. I'm just so busy. There's just so much going on in my life. I can hardly manage it all. And uh, he was very sympathetic. He was very kind to me when I complained about how busy I was. And, but, but he very wisely said to me, I hate to break it to you, but it only gets worse. And I looked at him and I said, how, how could it possibly get any worse? And now that I'm older and I reflect back on that situation, often whenever I was talking with him, he had three little kids bouncing around the house. He was parenting while talking with me and balancing his job with Young Life and all that sort of stuff. And now I realize that he's right. Now that I have three children of my own that bounce around while I'm trying to do my job as well, I realize that he's right, that my busyness has only gotten worse and it hasn't gotten any better. I don't know about you, but I have an electronic calendar. Most people have electronic calendars, and it's always opened on my, on my computer, and I'm always adding and subtracting to it. I'm almost always massaging it and moving things around and doing all this sort of stuff, and it's color-coded. So certain aspects of my life get one color and other aspects of my life get another color. And often you can look at it and admire the beautiful rainbow that is my calendar. But I often look at my calendar with really mixed emotions. Sometimes I look at it and I, and I see this huge mountain of all these things that I'm involved in and all these things that I'm doing. And I'm really excited about climbing that mountain. I get real excited about all the pieces of my life and all the exciting things that I get to do. But other times... I look at my calendar and I look at that mountain and I have very different feelings. Sometimes that mountain feels really oppressive. And I wonder how I'm going to get everything done that's crammed in to my day. Now there's one thing I want to be really clear about. And that is that I don't think busyness in and of itself is a wrong thing. I think if you look at the New Testament, you'll see that Jesus was often very busy. So I don't think busyness is a wrong thing. But I do think that it is very connected to some deep things that exist in our soul. Because I believe, like most things, our busyness is driven by very deep desires that exist only in our soul. And the truth is that we're searching for something. All of us are searching for something. We're searching for satisfaction for those deepest desires that exist in our soul. And often, we search for that satisfaction in our busyness. But ultimately, what we'll see is that our busyness 
can never truly satisfy those deepest desires that we have in our hearts. And because it doesn't satisfy, often our hearts are very profoundly restless. So this morning, what I'd like to do is ask perhaps some of the hardest questions for busy people, for myself, for you, and that is, what is the fuel for our busyness? What are the things that are driving us so much in a, as, a, as a culture into busyness, as a city into busyness, and as people into busyness? What are the desires that often lie behind our actions? First thing I think that we try to get out of busyness, the thing that we try to satisfy our desires, is that busyness can often be fueled by our desire for worth and our desire for identity. The same guy that wrote that article in the New York Times said this. He says, busyness serves as a kind of existential reassurance, a hedge against emptiness. Obviously, your life cannot possibly be silly or trivial, or meaningless if you are so busy, completely booked, and in demand of every hour of every day. You see, often what we try to do is we try to find our worth as individuals, and we try to, in our busyness, and we try to build our identity out of our busyness as well. The truth is we all want to be valued, right? We all want to feel in demand, and often we allow our calendar to determine who we are as people. Our identity becomes wrapped up in the very things that we do. The stuff that we do in our life becomes our identity. And when we don't do a lot, when we have days where there's nothing on our calendar, we feel as if it's a commentary on our worth or our value as individuals. You see, we try to build our identity and our worth out of our busyness. But often our busyness is fueled also by our sense of shame. And that might sound a little weird at first, but stick with me for a minute. Often our busyness is an attempt to cover our sense of shame. If you've been with us long enough, you'll know that that we believe some very profound things about Scripture. And one of the things that we believe is that Adam and Eve were born perfect. You can read about it in the first couple chapters of Genesis, but we know that just just shortly after they were created, and in this perfect scenario, that they fell, or we believe that they sinned, that they, they stepped out in rebellion against God. And after they committed that first sin, they immediately went out and they got busy. They got busy trying to cover up the shame of their sin the shame that their sin had produced. The scriptures tell us that they realized that they were naked, so they, so they rushed out. They got busy trying to, to create clothing on their own to try to cover over their, their, their shame, to try to cover over their guilt. And you and I have been repeating this ever since they committed that first sin. Whenever we wrong someone that we care about, our first and strongest inclination is to do what? It's to go out to get busy and to try to cover over the guilt that we feel and to try to cover over the shame that we feel. We believe that if we just do enough stuff, we can return to a good place with them. Just anecdotally, we know this, we laugh about this often, but when men do stupid stuff, right? When men do things to upset or to hurt their wives, what is their first inclination? Well, I'm going to go out and I'm going to buy my wife flowers. I'm going to go out and buy her chocolates or do the very thing that I, 
hope will get me back into good graces with my wife. And, and what's behind all that? It's an attempt to cover over our feelings of guilt, to cover over our feelings of shame. And spiritually, you and I do this all of the time with God. We unconsciously know that we have offended God with our lives, and often we want to do what we can in order to cover our shame and to cover our guilt. And ever since Adam and Eve sinned, you and I have been repeating that very same error with our busyness almost every day, an attempt to cover over our shame. But the third thing that busyness can often be connected to, as I believe, and that is that busyness can be fueled by our desire for achievement. It can be fueled by our desire for achievement. Really, this is the other side of the same coin when it comes to our shame. Earlier, I told you that about my feelings that I feel often when I look at my calendar. I admire the rainbow and all that. But if I were honest with you, I must confess that there are times when I look at my calendar and subconsciously think how important I must be to be so busy as a person. See, sometimes perhaps cynical people argue that when people often say that they are so busy, that it is sometimes a a boast that is cleverly disguised as a complaint. You see, not only are we trying to cover our shame, but we're trying to improve our resume. We're trying to improve our resume to the world, to our friends, but we're ultimately trying to improve, improve our resume to God. And incidentally, I think this is often what fuels perfectionism that most of us struggle with too. It can often be the same desire that lies behind our perfectionism, and that is that we have to be perfect We have to be busy and we have to be perfect in all that we do to achieve the very thing that we most desire. Martin Luther described this as the slavery of living to build our own merits, to earn our own forgiveness, to earn our own approval in front of others and mostly in front of God. So all of these desires, the desire for worth, the desire to cover over our shame, the desire to achieve, they're all deep desires that can often drive us into very, very busy lives. But what we know inherently, though we often don't realize it, what we know inherently is that busyness can never be the solution to these desires. Because busyness doesn't satisfy, it leads us to have souls that we would often characterize as restlessness. And that restlessness can be the cause of our busyness and can also be the byproduct of our busyness as well. So the question is, for those of us that struggle with these desires, for those of us that struggle with restless souls, for those of us that struggle with our calendars, what are we to do about it? What are we to do about our restless souls? Time Magazine did a... Did a um, Gosh, it was called a photo blog at one point. And uh, it was a photo blog that would compare the presidents when they took office compared to when they left office. Have you ever noticed this before, that often when a president comes to power, they kind of looked young and vibrant and and they've got color to their hair. and, And usually after their presidential term, things have changed. They look kind of gaunt and They've lost all the color to their hair, and they've, they've really changed physically because of the busyness and the stress of being in office. It really takes a toll on them as people. 
Well, most people believe that King David is the author who wrote the Psalms that we just looked at. And if you know anything about King David's kind of career, it was not an easy career as the, as the king of Israel. It was marked by all sorts of political drama. There was always seemed to be some outward threat that was threatening the kingdom that King David had to deal with. He had to deal with a very substantial moral failure on the part of his own life. At one point, his son tried to uh, usurp the throne, tried to uh, stage a coup, and actually humiliated his very own father in front of the rest of the nation. His reign was full of stress. It was full of difficulty. It was full of busyness and intrigue and scandal and controversy and all the things that come with it. Yet in this psalm, he writes words very powerfully. He says, I have calmed and quieted my soul. You see, somehow in the midst of all his controversy, in the midst of all his turmoil, his soul was at peace. Makes us wonder how we could be like David, how we could experience calm in the midst of all the craziness that exists in our life. And I think the answer comes in the very nature of the gospel because King David himself had found rest from his soul in a relationship with God. He says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. He repeats those words. Many of you know that I was a youth director for a long time, and uh, we did all sorts of interesting youth events with the teenagers. And every year they seemed to demand one particular event, and that was an all-nighter. They wanted to do a lock-in. They wanted to do an all-nighter that uh, they wanted to kind of stay up all night and be crazy and all this sort of stuff and, and do what they can. And I hated them. And I actually believed that the kids hated them too. When it came to be around 3 o'clock, they resented the fact that they had asked for an all-nighter. But for whatever reason, they wanted to do it, and often I would cave, and we would do an all-nighter until I got older enough in this ministry thing, and I banned them completely from youth group. <laughs> but when I caved, when I allowed them to happen, I can remember 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning would start to roll around, and I would start looking at my watch, and that would begin the countdown. It would begin the countdown till their parents came and picked them up, and I could go home, and I could eat something, and I could go to sleep. I anticipated it probably more than anything else in life, was that those parents would come and pick up those kids because I wanted to get some sleep. That sense of anticipation is what David speaks about in this psalm. He waited with anticipation for the Lord. Why? Because he knew that his deepest desires were satisfied in the Lord. His deepest desires were satisfied in a relationship with Jesus Christ. He deeply understood three things about the gospel. He understood first that the gospel covers our shame. He says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness of sins. He understood that as hard as he worked and as hard as you and I work, we will never be able to cover over our shame. We will never be able to earn our own forgiveness. We will never be able to satisfy our guilt. 
we will never be able to overcome our regrets and our mistakes and our sins and our missteps. But we need God, but we recognize that we need God to come and to cover over our shame. And he does that in Jesus Christ. The psalmist also understood that in the gospel, God gives us a new identity. And that new identity speaks very profoundly about our worth as people. The psalmist wrote, For with the Lord there is steadfast love. You see, it's not so much about what you do. It's not so much about your resume. It's not so much how many colors you have on your calendar or how busy you are. It's not about what you do. But about, it's about who you know in the gospel. See, we can try to build our identity around our busyness, mistakenly thinking that our busyness equals our value as people, but in the end, it leaves us unsatisfied and restless. But the psalmist found rest in realizing that though the world may crumble around him, and often it did, if you read his story, often the world was crumbling all around King David, but he realized that though everything may fall around him, nothing could take God's love away from him because he knew that God's love had nothing to do with his efforts. It had nothing to do with his performance. It had nothing to do with how busy his calendar it was, but it had everything to do with God's love and with his grace. And the psalmist also realized that in the gospel, God achieved what you and I are unable to achieve, to achieve. He says in verse 7, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for the with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. You see, the psalmist realized that no matter how hard he worked, it would never be enough. No matter how busy his calendar was, no matter how well thought of he was by his peers, it was never enough. He had to rest in what God had done on his behalf. You see, C.S. Lewis said, the Christian does not think God will love us because we are good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. How is God's, poss- how is, how is God's love made possible for us? How is it possible for us to find rest for our souls that are restless? And ultimately, the answer comes in a relationship with God, and ultimately in a relationship with God's Son, Jesus Christ. It says very profoundly in Isaiah, these are passages that we often read during the Lenten season, it says this, speaking of Jesus, hundreds of years before Jesus would even come, it says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers was silent, so he opened not his mouth. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. For the transgressors. You see, the Jesus story tells us that before Jesus' accusers, after he was arrested and he was brought before his accusers, before he was brought before uh, all the judges for trial, it says that he was silent. He offered no words as they arrested him and as they beat him and as they executed him. Why? Because he knew that he had to offer up himself as the perfect sacrifice so that you and I, 
could have our deepest, most inward desires satisfied so that you and I could have souls that are at rest. So my wife and I understand well the the image that um, the psalmist uses of a weaned child at peace. See, we've had three children, and when you have newborn children, you know that they can scream and cry in such a way, with such a pitch, that it makes your head want to explode. It's so loud, and it's so, I mean, it just drives you crazy. And then you also experience the moment where your child finds rest after crying for a long time, and it's as if everything is right in the world. Whether they find their thumb to suck on or find whatever it is to satisfy them, it's as if everything has gone right in the world, and everything comes at peace in the world. And that's what the psalmist is speaking of in this illustration. It's the question that we have to ask ourselves this morning. Does your soul... Does your inmost being have the quiet and calm of a child that's at rest? Or is it more like a child that is screaming with unfulfilled desires? As you sit here this morning and as you reflect on your life, as you reflect on your calendar, as you reflect on your busyness and the desires that that drive us into busyness, do you need rest? Do you feel the need for rest? Not just relaxation, Not just a nice vacation in the Mediterranean, but do you need rest for your soul? Not a break from your busyness, but a rest that speaks to the most profound nature of who you are. If your soul needs rest, the gospel tells us that the only true place to find that rest is in Jesus. Augustine of of Hippo, who's considered to be a, a church father, who lived in probably the three or four hundreds, uh, lived a very colorful life. If you've ever read his story, it's, it's, it's very colorful. He was a man who was on a search to find peace for his soul, and he tried just about everything in his search in order to find peace in his soul until he found it in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And he penned some of the most famous words that have ever been written in Christianity. And he said this, Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Are your hearts restless this morning? Because the only true place to find rest is in Jesus Christ.